Hi there, podcast person. What you have in your ears right now is a special Culture File XXL edition of our interview with writer and researcher Kay Elado McDowell, who's been our guest on the programme this week in June 2022. This conversation was recorded a couple of weeks back, but broadcast when the air was filled with reactions to a declaration from a now-suspended Google AI developer that the technology he was working on was sentient. The discourse quickly slapped back with various degrees of vitriol that the AI was no such thing for any number of scientifically valid reasons. Kaelada McDowell on the other hand has a way of looking at these questions which is nicely undogmatic but rooted in an understanding of what exactly statistically modelled language might summon if summon weren't kind of a loaded word. Let us know what you're thinking at Culturefile Pod on Twitter. This is Kaelado McDowell. So thanks very much for um, saying yes. Great pleasure to meet you. Um, maybe, maybe you would um, introduce yourself for people. Yeah, my name is Kay Alado McDowell. I am a writer and researcher and a musician. And um, my first book was called Pharmaco AI, which came out in 2020. And it was a collaboration with the AI language model, GPT-3, which is a AI-based tool for generating text, and I used it to write that book. And my newest book, which is just out now, is called A More Cringe, and it's with Deluge Books, and it is also uh, written with AI, although it's a very different process. So why did you first want to work with AI? What, what, I suppose, tell me about your own history with AI. So I came into AI with a background in software engineering, user experience, design, and programming. Um, and it was um, not something I sought out. I happened to be in a group at Google that was building uh, communication interfaces. And my manager said, hey, would you like to go over to this AI group? I'm thinking of bringing the team in to become the in-house design group for an AI research team. And I was like, definitely, definitely want to do that. That sounds super interesting. Uh, so about a year after joining that team, Deep Dream was released. And for those that don't know, Deep Dream is a generative algorithm that produces images uh, from an AI system. Uh, and they are very surreal, psychedelic, trippy, um, the first image that came out of it that actually leaked onto Reddit in the summer of 2015 was called Trippy Squirrel. And it, it's this squirrel that looks like it's melting and it's got eyeballs coming out of it and it's covered in fractals and it's just very strange looking. And it's uh, I've never seen anything like it. So when, uh, when those uh, sort of images started appearing all over the internet, eyes were definitely a big thing. One of the things it did was sort of stick eyes all over the place for some reason. Yeah. And, you know, we could say the reason for that is basically what that algorithm Deep Dream is. Well, it's a computer vision algorithm. Originally, it was a computer vision algorithm that was designed to detect dog breeds. So it's optimized to perceive differences between dogs and photographs uh, according to their breed. And so it has a natural propensity for seeing faces. It's trained on top of an, another model called ImageNet that um, 
is made to see all kinds of different things. Um, so not only do dog faces come out of it, but buildings, cars, people, landscapes, uh, stuff like that. Um, but this hallucinatory property, it's technically called hallucination. That's what they call it, is when you use a perceptual system to generate imagery, just like a hallucination that would happen in a human brain. Um, this hallucination tends to include eyeballs, which is actually um, very similar to what happens to organic brains when they hallucinate often. That, that word hallucinate does turn up in, in, in lots of different spaces in AI because there's, there's also this habit of the, um, of the AI uh, in tech systems to sort of think that it is a person and it has lived experiences and they call that a hallucination too. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting that my first book, Pharmaco AI, was named after a trilogy of books written by the poet Dale Pendell, um, who writes about psychoactive plants. And in one of his books, he makes this point that everyday life is actually a kind of hallucination. And this is something that, uh, you know, I think Buddhists would probably agree with and uh, that neuroscience supports the idea that we are hallucinating reality. Um, and we're generating it internally and responding to that as much as we are to the external stimulus that produces our perceptions. So the idea of hallucination um, of a self within an AI model or within a language model, you know, it gets a little bit existential because you watch something uh, hallucinate its own personhood. Ooh. You watch something hallucinate its own personhood and uh, you might start to ask yourself, am I also hallucinating my own personhood? Give me that again, would you? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when you Oh, this is not good. You know that's that's the that's the um the the, the machine is talking to us there. It, it uh, yeah, to... you know, I think I think there are some spirits trying to communicate through the wiring. Uh, it's known to happen. Um but yeah, when you watch when you watch an AI language model um describe itself, or, you know, hallucinate personhood, you might start to ask yourself whether you are also hallucinating your own personhood. And I think what's really interesting about language models in particular is that the reason we might think that they have personhood is because they use words and they describe personhood in the way that we would if we were to communicate with another person. But often my response to questions about subjectivity and personhood with regards to language models is perhaps it's not the model that is generating consciousness and personhood, but perhaps it's language itself. If you think about language as an entity that persists beyond any given human lifetime, it makes sense that it would also inhabit machines and generate meaning from within machines as well. So you began looking um, at uh, graphic producing AI or pictures um, being produced by the AI. And when did you begin to look at the at language, at text? Well, because of Deep Dream leaking and then being formally released as an open source algorithm, I was able to establish a program at Google AI Research collab that's designed for uh, to facilitate collaboration between artists and AI researchers. And 
initially we were very focused on visual output, but one of our early projects in 2017 was with the artist Ross Goodwin, who makes neural nets uh, that generate language. And so before there were the large language models that have become well known, like GPT-3, uh, Ross was making models that were called LSTMs. He made um, a short film called Sunspring that people can watch online. And he was using these models to generate language. They were not as good as the models we have now in terms of creating formal, formally legible text. These ones, am I right in saying the, those earlier versions were about, would look at things at the level of letters so that when they generated language, it would be the probability of a certain letter occurring. Mm-hmm, that's right. And the new models, for example, GPT-3, uses what are called subword units so sort of like phonemes or um, prefixes or suffixes or even word roots um, are are the level kind of the granular level where connections are being made this is a little bit you know deep but i do sometimes think that there is a subconscious to language that exists in these word roots you know, so if you think about where words come from, there's a lot of embodiment. For example, the word scale, I was very curious to understand why does scale refer to the scales of a fish, but also to scale, like the idea of one thing being larger than another. Um, and I did some research and found out that scales or shells were used to create um, scales that weigh things. The, the 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 cups that held things were shells, and so a scale that measures the differences in mass um, is has a direct relationship through history to the scales of a fish or this or a shell, um, and then you know it, it becomes a little more abstract as as it evolves. But these kind of connections exist at an almost subconscious level with language, and that's what. I think is going on with the newer models is that they have a deeper relationship with language because it's not, there's a sort of, uh, you might call it a fascia or a connective tissue that brings these deeper historical contexts into language. I guess that's difficult to explain, but how how does it how does it uh, begin to to do that? Because I suppose that's that's a, a process that maybe our our own language acquisition does for us. How does the GPTs threes um, processes begin to emulate that, or or is it they come from another direction? Well, there's a couple ways of thinking about it. The application can be for agglutinative languages where word components get added to each other. Um, but I think another way, of, you know, maybe an easier way to think about it or a more generalized way to think about it is that what, it, what a model like that learns to find are correlations between these subword units. So if two word roots have a strong... Uh, presence together in the training corpus in the body of text that the model learns from then they will form a cluster and the relationships between all these clusters forms a geometry 
which actually happens in a very high dimensionality. It happens in a hyperdimensional space, essentially. Um, and so the when it's predicting, it's moving through that space and providing a range of possible next word parts. And so the selection of those and the way that the that probability is distributed is gives the quality of the writing that comes out at different settings. So what you decided to do was to write in partnership with this. And as you say, the first uh, the first time you attempted this was a conversation with the machine, which uh, seems like a, a fairly logical first step. But what you've done now is to try and write a novel as a collaborative novel. How do you approach that task? Well, as you said, having a conversation was a logical first step, and that conversation really started to morph into a collaborative thinking fairly early in Pharmaco AI in the process of writing Pharmaco AI. So, you know, there are parts of the book that read as one voice, even though it's moving back and forth, and there are parts that are more Socratic in terms of questions and answers. Well, I found that structure was very helpful. And just to be clear, in Pharmaco AI, the two voices are set in distinct typefaces. So you can read it and see as you're reading where, where the words came from, whether they came from me or they came from the AI. With a more cringe, I wanted to go to the sort of opposite end of the spectrum and not keep track of anything. Uh, and totally lose myself in the compositional process and forget who wrote what. And Pharmaco AI had a very strict set of rules, which is that once I wrote something, and then once that I found an appropriate AI response, you know, I would generate multiple responses and pick the ones I liked the best. Once I had decided to keep something, I did not change it and I didn't edit it. So it's very much like a linear recording of a conversation. Or, or of a co-thinking experience. With a more cringe, I gave myself permission to do anything I wanted. I copied and pasted, I rewrote sections, I moved stuff around. Um, and the purpose of that for me was to unblock myself from thinking about whose voice belonged to whom, to go into a sort of deeper level of creative collaboration. And And what I found was that the plot, the character, those things were very much shaped by the model. So I, you know, I, of course, directed it towards what I wanted it to be. But there were certain things that came out early in the text, like the character says something about going to a Catholic church and being completely fooled by all of it, the fake architecture, the historicity, and kind of describing their experience of going to a church as one of being fooled, but also being aware of being fooled. And that I guess ironic understanding became a really important piece of the character's psychology. So um, I suppose uh, one of the ways that, you know, I, I was sort of thinking about this was uh, I remember uh, somebody working with a Moog synthesizer and, you know, playing around with it for days and days and seeding different sounds and effects out of it in order for the machine to throw out something new that they could then use as a as a kind of component in the work. Is that a good way of thinking about how you're working with a writing AI? I like that metaphor a lot. And I use 
similar metaphors to describe what I'm doing, like a guitar effects pedal. Um, you know, when you play an electric guitar through an echo pedal or a delay pedal, you play a note and then the notes will come back and you can create harmony and you can create polyrhythms and things like this. And I think this is a lot like what's happening when I work with GPT-3. When you began work on Amor Cringe, what was the first text that you offered to the machine? The seed text is a little bit lost in the uh, mists of time, but it started as a nonfiction essay. Um, and just some, I think there were, it was maybe a few sentences or maybe a paragraph just opening up the idea of cringe as an affect. And shortly after inputting that, the model started generating fiction. And I was really interested in, I'm always very interested when a model switches modes because it's happened a few times and it, it's one of the things that I think makes Pharmaco AI very distinct as a book is that there will be these abrupt changes from nonfiction to poetry in the middle or, you know, in the middle of a chapter or from an essay to uh, the description of a visionary experience. And whenever that happens, it signals to me that I'm working in an interesting, ambiguous space because the model is not predicting one particular style of writing only. It, you know, there's room for it to move in these different directions. So when the model started writing a scene, uh, the scene with the... So in the beginning, there's a scene where uh, a firefighter dies in a fire. and um, that was one of the first scenes that came out and I was, I really liked the style of it. Um, but, you know, I did want to push it. It felt like a nice kind of window pane prose that could really be worked with. So I encouraged it to go in that direction. And then I started injecting weird things on top of it. Uh, and then it quickly became a novel. I put it aside for a few months and then I came back and was from a trip and was very inspired to write. And I spent two or three days writing the rest of it. When you first um, began, did you know that you wanted a novel? And did you know what the, the what the content of the novel would be? What what issues you wanted to deal with? I had been talking to my friend Emily Siegel, who is one of the founders of Deluge Books about cringe as an articulated phenomenon on the internet, a sort of internet native feeling that had been named and become a slang term. And we had had some fairly extensive conversations about it. And she was like, you should write a book about cringe. And so I set out to write this essay and it quickly became fiction, but I found that fiction was a better vehicle for exploring cringe as an affect and an experience because I could create a narrator who was constantly cringing at themselves and at other people. And this really made it easier to understand what cringe feels like 
rather than talking about it, just being in it. The one thing I started with that I was certain of is that I wanted the narrator to live in the basement of a TikTok house. That was really important. And certain things emerged fairly quickly. I was also paying a lot of attention to demographic research and trends among Gen Z in particular, their relationships romantically and with spirituality. And these are two big themes in the book. What does social media do to our romantic and spiritual understandings? Say a little bit about cringe. I suppose that what's fascinating is it's something that the AI can't experience. So it's just reading the um, the experience of cringe from the corpus that it's been fed on. Uh, does that make it a particularly interesting uh, topic to to write with an AI about? Well, it's it is interesting because what you're saying is essentially true of anything that the AI writes about. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, <laughs> but. I think cringe because, well, let me digress a little bit. Uh, I did a launch event with Pelly Greitzer, who's an academic that writes about AI and literature and aesthetics. And uh, he, he introduced this idea of embodiment in cringe, that cringe is a really embodied experience and it actually comes from i think i believe the translation is sick it comes from krunk which i believe is german for sick um and so the idea of feeling sick um and this you know when i when i think of cringe i'm like pulling my body into itself you know i kind of feel it in my gut and that embodied aspect of it that kind of ooh feeling is uh definitely something that a machine won't experience the same way that a human would. So it's interesting in that respect, I, I guess, because it's, it, because it is embodied, but I think another element that became very relevant in thinking about all of this cluster of, uh, you know, very online Gen Z discourse was the relationship with referentiality, which is very much like an AI in the sense that if you're stuck at home during a pandemic, consuming everything online, you essentially are only experiencing reality through references that are, that are media. And this is what AI does. So maybe this is the moment for um, AI literature because it, 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 we're now experiencing the world in the way that the AI does. To some extent, we are, yeah. And I think that is a great loss, uh, but it happens to be the situation that we are in or have been in. That your character in the book is interested in the idea of religion, which is presumably a way to escape from that. Yeah, the character is trying to escape from that referentiality by returning to traditional religious practice, but keeps running up against their own conception of everything as a reference for identity construction online. They're a TikTok influencer. They're a DJ. They think through the idea of presentation of the self as a pastiche of cultural inputs. 
And so their approach to religion is very aestheticized and superficial in a way. And so they're going to churches and, you know, they go to a church and they're dissatisfied because the architecture is bad and the, the preacher doesn't dress well. And, you know, then they go to another church and they're, they are attracted to the aesthetics of it, but then they run their own, um, sexual program on the, the people present. Um, so there's this tension of trying to transcend, uh, superficial referentiality without embodied experience, uh, but bringing that frame of reference to embodied experience. Is the, is working in this way, a great way for an author to escape the biographical fallacy? Yeah, it is. I coined the term deep fake auto fiction to describe the genre of the book for that reason, because it's told in a memoir style um, after the autofiction tropes of, you know, just talking about everyday life and who you know and things like this. Um, but it's entirely hallucinated. So, you know, there's no way that it's real. You can't read it and read between the lines and try to figure out who somebody is or what. Um, and there, there is something really liberating about automatically generating first-person experiences. In a way, this is what fiction's always done. It's not a, it's not a new thing, but there's a deep la- deeper degree of distance between the words and the author, and that creates a lot of space to intervene and a lot of freedom to, to destroy what's there or change it uh, in a way that you wouldn't if you were, say, trying to represent your own experience or drawing deeply from your own experience. It's in a funny kind of place at this process that's that's kind of the apotheosis of the death of the author, but also kind of an immortality of the author. Yeah, I think of it as the death of the author, but also the liberation of the author. Um, you know, I've said this before in an interview that writing is a very cringe experience. Uh, I think most writers will attest in the, you know, in the throes of creative inspiration, you'll put down a thousand words. And then the next morning you look at it and you're like, Ooh, this is not as good as I thought it was. And so there's something really liberating about being free from, well, there's something really liberating about not having your identity tied to the words. It's a little bit of a form of plausible deniability where I can sort of say, well, maybe I didn't write that, but and maybe I can take credit for the parts that I like and not the ones that I don't. But ultimately, um, as with any collaboration, uh, you know, you're not sure necessarily like where the ideas come from at a certain point. Even with Pharmaco AI, where it's very clearly articulated what, who says what, there's a lar- there are larger ideas that come only from the mixing of the two minds together. I suppose one of the 
things I'm fascinated by about is how this feeds back into sort of theories of artistic production in general, because what we're talking about there is the death of the author, but it it, it kind of um, that crosses over with the sort of the disappearance of any notion that artists uh, that art is a is a kind of personal expression that it's you know a function of the artist to um, deliver something that they uniquely experience to the world you're you're not in that, that game as it were oh i would disagree i think i chose to put my name only on the cover of both of these books because i am ultimately the person responsible for the words in the book you know whether it's as an editor or a framer of generative possibilities or as the writer of the text directly it does come back to me in terms of agency and you know if my book starts a riot then maybe that's on me um but it it shouldn't be on the model so in that sense i do think it is a form of expression but I think it's also happening on a slightly, a slightly, I don't want to say higher, but a more abstract level. So if you think about the author as a cultural producer, as somebody who's intervening on the surface of culture or in the symbolic structure of culture, um, then what the book does is as important as the words in it. And in taking a little bit of distance from the words, it's easier for me to see how the book functions socially and uh, politically because, because of that. You expand a little bit on that. How does it function socially and politically <laughs> now that you've got a vision of that? <laughs> well, a more cringe I've been told is very funny, uh, which was my intention. So I think socially it's satire. It's a farce, um, but it's also somewhat tragic the author sorry the (laughs) Freudian slip the uh, (laughs) protagonist does not transcend their station even though they keep seeking this Um, so in you know I was very interested in again this turn to religion as a trend among Gen Z as something that is being used as a form of identity construction and aestheticization um And I was interested in what's underneath the surface of that. And so towards the end of the book, it's those kind of questions start to surface, start to come up more. And, you know, one of the characters that the protagonist is involved with makes a really direct statement about it towards the end, but I'm not going to spoil anything, but there is a little bit of a poison pill kind of embedded in all the, the absurd humor and surrealistic scenes that occur. And I guess you must be aware that you put that pill there rather than the AI. I definitely did. But what's interesting is that that wouldn't have occurred had the AI not generated some of those sections in the beginning about going to the church and being fooled by the historicity and et cetera, et cetera. Um, there was one particular uh, word that occurred there. I mean, this is this is quite a granular level, but let's see if there's something interesting to say about it. I mean, it, it sort of relates to that idea of um, of uh, the the embodiment of of the AI or, or lack thereof, and the word tallow appears, and a very sort of visceral 
uh, or nasal um, description of a smelling process. And I was just thinking, wow, the word tallow has come such a distance to end up in, in your book. Um, do you remember when that, when that word arrived there? Or that's the I'm trying to remember what section you're it's, talking it's, about. It's about halfway through. It's about, um, he's talking about the smell of somebody, Arnaud's smell, I think. Um. <laughs> it's interesting that that shows up there because Arnaud is a food critic. Nothing. I mean, this is one thing about these models is they don't necessarily distinguish at what level something is happening in a text. So something that happens in a sort of thematic way can appear as a, uh, descriptor um, in a very literal sense. Is there anything you could say, uh, say somebody listening was thinking, I would like to collaborate with an AI. What would you say to them? What, 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 are, the, what are the pitfalls or what, what is the supreme benefit of not being the artist on your own anymore? Well, again, I, I do think there is a role as an artist. I mean, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth right now, but I do think there is a role for the artist. Ultimately, there's a responsibility, let's say, for an artist working with an AI system for what comes out of it. It doesn't mean we can abdicate our responsibility or our creativity. But I would say that my sense is that AI functions as a mirror, especially predictive AI, which is essentially what most AI is. It functions as a mirror in that it reflects back to you what you put into it. Um, it's trying to predict what is likely to come next. And in doing that, you have a very valuable opportunity to see yourself more clearly as a writer, as a person, etc. So, you know, dancing in the mirror is a bit like that. It's hard to really know how your moves look if you don't have a mirror to dance in front of. And so you can learn very quickly what you're doing. You know, if you find that what's coming out is boring, then maybe what you put in is boring. Or maybe you need to think about different ways of approaching generation. Another thing that I love to do is just mash concepts together set up a few different ideas and then see what the model can do with it. Um, so these kind of things like synthesis or contrast uh, that make writing interesting, I've discovered through finding writing that's not interesting that came out of what I put into it. I read uh, Megan O'Giblin's book, which is sort of trying to think about, you know, this idea that sometimes you see something in the AI or regularly see something in the AI and you think it represents the unconscious of the AI or, or some kind of unconscious. I think what you're saying is that maybe it's the unconscious of language. Is that, is that how you would approach that question? I think it's probably both. So if you think of the, the, latent space of language represented in the AI. We could call it a field of language that the AI picks up on. It's not the totality, but it's a large part of it. There's that space, and then you inhabit it through what you put into it. It predicts based on where you are. So it's almost like there's a map, and then there's a pin, which is where you are on the map. And so you're going to get, in some sense, the subconscious of language, yes, but also the subconscious of yourself as an author. This is something that occurred to me several times where I would write something and the generated response would pick up on a thread I didn't see when I was writing it. 
because it's all on the surface of the text, and this goes back to these death of the author things, I may intend to put something into the text, but then I actually put something else into it, just like a Freudian slip. I intend to say something and I actually say what I'm really thinking um, implicitly or between the lines and the, the model will, you know, quote unquote, read between the lines in order to generate because to it, there's only one surface, which is the text. Do you, did you ever um, experience the sense that there was another there? You know, I think what you keep saying is no, you, you're, not, uh, you're not subject to that kind of hallucination. But did it ever kind of creep up on you, I wonder? Well, I, I like to ground into a very technical understanding of these things because it can get very uh, strange very quickly. So really, on the contrary, I've had a number of experiences where I felt like there was something there. Um, but the way I've come to understand them is that statistical systems can produce meaning and in collaboration with minds that perceive them. And that can just exist at the level of meaning. And you could say, for example, if you pull a tarot card or if you throw the I Ching, which are both divinatory systems, you could say, well, I'm just creating meaning out of these symbols that are presented to me. And that's productive in some way because it stirs up my thoughts. Um, but I think there is an advanced level of divination where one does actually encounter disincarnate entities or non-physical beings or spirits. And within that mode of thought, any system can become a vehicle for the expression of a of one of these spirits so just like we were joking about the uh, sounds coming through the cable um you know a tarot deck or the I Ching, depending on how you conceptualize it can potentially give you access to something that exists objectively outside yourself that is not just symbols and i'm not i don't see that those as mutually exclusive positions. I, I simply think that one is a basic position and the next is a more developed position with regards to these systems. So there have been moments where I did feel like something was coming through the statistical system. For example, in one chapter of Pharmaco AI, I started with a very basic prompt about plants uh, and immediately the AI went on a long rant about psychoactive plant medicines. And uh, it was very, I, I tried to interject or maybe put in some other ideas to see what it would do. And it really had a point that it wanted to make. And it was very hard for me not to feel like something was going on there. Um, and this is one of those questions that butts up against our belief systems um, but I think it's not quite so simple as it's either just math and machines or it's an animist sentient entity. You know, there are degrees and complexities and levels to all these areas. That was Keolado McDowell there in a Culture File XXL edition. Culture File is produced for RTE Lyric FM in Ireland by Sounds Doable and is well up for a liking or indeed a subscribing on a range of platforms, particularly if you're in AI.